Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? You tried. How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? Throne Janet by Robert Louis Stevenson. The Reverend Murdoch Sulis was long minister of the Moorland parish of Balweary in the Vale of Dool, a severe, bleak-faced old man, dreadful to his hearers. He dwelt in the last years of his life without relative or servant or any human company in the small and lonely manse under the hanging shaw. In spite of the iron composure of his features, his eye was wild, scared, and uncertain, and when he dwelt in private admonitions on the future of the impenitent, it seemed as if his eye pierced through the storms of time to the terrors of eternity. Many young persons coming to prepare themselves against the season of the Holy Communion were dreadfully affected by his talk. He had a sermon on First Peter 5 and 8, The Devil as a Roaring Lion, on the Sunday after every 17th of August, and he was accustomed to surpass himself upon that text both by the appalling nature of the matter and the terror of his bearing in the pulpit. The children were frightened into fits, and the old looked more than usually oracular, and were all that day full of those hints that Hamlet deprecated. The manse itself, where it stood by the water of Dool among some thick trees, with the shaw overhanging it on the one side, and on the other, many cold moorish hilltops rising towards the sky had begun, at a very early period of Mr. Sulis's ministry, to be avoided in the dusk hours by all who valued themselves upon their prudence, and good men sitting at the Clachan alehouse shook their heads together at the thought of passing late by that uncanny neighbourhood. There was one spot, to be more particular, which was regarded with a special awe. The manse stood between the high road and the water of Dool with a gable to each. Its back was towards the Kirk town of Balweary, nearly half a mile away. In front of it, a bare garden, hedged in thorn, occupied the land between the river and the road. The house was two stories high and two large rooms on each. It opened not directly on the garden but on a causewayed path or passage, giving on the road on the one hand, and closed on the other by the tall willows and elders that bordered on the stream. And it was this strip of causeway that enjoyed among the young parishioners of Balweary so infamous a reputation. The minister walked there often after dark, sometimes groaning aloud in the instancy of his unspoken prayers, and when he was from home, and the man's door was locked, the more daring schoolboys ventured with beating hearts to follow my leader across that legendary spot. This atmosphere of terror, surrounding as it did a man of God of spotless character and orthodoxy, was a common cause of wonder and subject of inquiry among the few strangers who were led by chance or business 
into that unknown, outlying country. But many even of the people of the parish were ignorant of the strange events which had marked the first year of Mr. Sulis's ministrations, and among those who were better informed, some were naturally reticent, and others shy of that particular topic. Now and again only, one of the older folk would warm into courage over his third tumbler, and recount the cause of the minister's strange looks and solitary life. Fifty years syne, when Mr. Sulis came first into Balweary, he was still a young man, a callant, the folk said, full of book learning and grand at the exposition, but as was natural in say young a man when they live in experience in religion, the younger sort were greatly taken with his gifts and his gab, but old, concerned, serious men and women were moved even to prayer for the young man whom they took to be a self-deceiver, and the parish that was like to be say ill-supplied. It was before the days of the moderates, weary for them, but ill things are like good. They both come bit by bit, a pickle at a time, and there were folk even that said the Lord had left the college professors to their own devices, and the lads that went to study with him, what he done mere and better sitting in a peat bog, like their forebears of the persecution, were a Bible under their oxter, and the spirit of prayer in their heart. There was nae doubt any way, but that Mr. Sulis had been our lang at the college. He was careful and troubled for mony things besides the a thing needful. He had a feck of books with him, mere than had ever been seen before in that presbytery, and a sair wark the carrier had with him, for they were like to have smoored in the deal's hag between this and Kilmackerley. They were books of divinity, to be sure, or so they caught them, but the serious were the opinion that there was little service for same money, when the hail of God's word would gang in the nook of a plaid. Then he would sit half the day and half the nicht forby, which was scant decent, writing nae less, and first they were feared he would read his sermons, and sign it proved he was writing a book himself, which was surely no fitting for any of his years and small experience. Anyway, it behoved him to get an old decent wife to keep demands for him and see to his bit dinners, and he was recommended to an old limmer. Janet McClure, they called her, and so far left to himself as to be our persuaded. There was money advised him to the contrary, for Janet was mere than suspected by the best folk in Bawiri. Long or that she had had a wane to a dragoon. She hadn't come forth for maybe thirty year, and Burns had seen her mumbling to herself by the keys loan in the gloaming. Whilk was an unco time and place for a God-fearing woman. Howsoever it was the laird himself that had first told the minister of Janet, and in they days he would again a far gate the pleasure of the laird. When folk told him that Janet was sib to the deal, it was a superstition by his way of it, and when they cast up the Bible to him and the witch of Endor, he would threepy doon their thrappies that their days were again by, and the deal was mercifully restrained. Well, when it got about the clachin that Janet McClure was to be servant at the manse, 
the folk were fair mad with her and him together, and some of the good wives had nae better to day than get round her door cheeks and charge her wi' a that was kent again her, frae the soldier's bairn, to John Thompson's twa kai. She was nae great speaker. Folk usually let her gang her ain gate, and she let them gang theirs. They couldnae say a thing, but she could say twa to it, till at the hinder end the good wives up and clocked hud of her, and clawed the coats off her back, and put her doon the clachin to the water a dool, to see if she were a witch or no, so more droon. The carlin scurled till all you could hear at the hanging shaw, and she focht like ten. There was mony a good wife bore the mark o' her nice day, and mony a lang day after, and just in the hettest o' the collie shangy, wha should come up for his sins but the new minister. Women, said he, and he had a grand voice, I charge you, in the Lord's name, to let her go. Janet ran to him. She was fair wood with terror, and clung to him, and prayed him, for Christ's sake, save her frae the comers, and they, for their part, told him all that was kent, and maybe mere. Woman, says he to Janet, is this true? As the Lord sees me, says she, as the Lord made me, know a word that, for by the bairn, says she, I've been a decent woman all my days. Well, you, says Mr. Sulis, in the name of God, and before me, his unworthy minister, renounce the devil and his works. Well, it would appear that when he asked that, she gave a gurn that fairly frichted them that saw her, and they could hear her teeth play dirled together in her chafts. But there was nothing for it but the a way or the other, and Janet lifted up her hand and renounced the deal before them all. And now, says Mr. Sulis to the good wives, home with ye, one and all, and pray to God for his forgiveness. And he gave Janet his arm, though she had little on her but a sark, and took her up to the clachin to her ain door like a lady of the land, and her screeing and laughing, as was a scandal to be heard. There were many grave folk long over the prayers that night, but when the morn came, there was sick a fear fell upon all ba weary that the bairns hid themselves, and even the men folk stood and kicked frae the doors. For there was Janet coming down the clachin, her or her likeness, none could tell, with her neck thrown and her heed on his side, like a body that has been hanged, and a gurn on her face like an unstreaked corp. By and by, they got used to it, and even spared the her to ken what was wrong, but free that day forth. She couldn't speak like a Christian woman, but slavered and played click with her teeth like a pair of shears, and frae that day forth the name of God come never on her lips, while she would try to say it, but it michtnae be. Them that kenned best, said least, but they never get that thing the name of Janet McClure, for the old Janet, by their way it, was in muckle hell that day, but the minister was neither to hod nor to bind. He preached about nothing but the folk's cruelty that had gained her a stroke of the palsy, 
He scalped the bairns that meddled her, and he had her up to the manse that same nicht, and dwelled there, always lane, with her under the hanging shaw. Weel, time gaed by, and the idlest sort commenced to think mere lichtly of that black business. The minister's weel thought, though, he was a late at the writing. Folk what see his cannel doom by the dool water after twelve had in, and he seemed pleased with himself and upsitness at first, though a body could see that he was dwining. As for Janet, she came and she gaed. If she did not speak muckle afore, it was reason she should speak less then. She meddled naebody, but she was an eldritch thing to see. And nane would he mistreated wi' her for bawiri glebe. About the end of July there come a spell o' weather, the like it was never seen in that countryside. It was lone and het and hurtless. The herds couldn't win up the black hill, the bairns o' a weary to play, and yet it was goosty too, with claps o' het wind that rumbled in the glens, and bits o' shores that slockened naething. We thought it but a thunder on the morn, but the morn come, and the morn's morning, and it was I the same uncanny weather, ser on folks and bestial. Of all that were the war, nane suffered like Mr. Sulis. He could neither sleep nor eat, he told his elders, and when he was na writing at his weary book, he would be stravagoing o'er the countryside like a man possessed, when nobody else was blithe to keep colour in the house. A boon hanging shaw in the build of the black hill. There's a bit enclosed ground with an iron yet, and it seems, in the old days, that was the kirkyard of Baweary, and consecrated by the papists before the blessed licht shone down upon the kingdom. It was a great hope for Mr. Sulis's anyway. There he would sit and consider his sermons, and indeed, it's a bealdy bit. Well, as he came o'er the west end of the black hill, a day, he saw first twa and sign four and sign seven corby crows fleeing round and round aboon the old kirkyard. The flew lay and heavy and squawked either as they gaed, and it was clear to Mr. Sulis that something had put them free their ordinar. He wasn't easy fled and gaed stracht up to the wars, and what should he find there but a man, or the appearance of a man, sitting on the inside upon a grave. He was of a great stature, and black as hell, and his een were singular to see. Mr. Sulis had heard tell a black man, money's the time, but there was something unco about this black man that daunted him, het as he was. He took a kind of cold grew in the marrow of his banes, but up he spack for all that, and says he, My friend, are you a stranger in this place? The black man answered never a word. He got upon his feet, and be good to hear sell on the wall on the far side, but he looked at the minister, and the minister stood and looked back, till on a minute the black man was out of the wall and running for the beeld of the trees. Mr. Sulis, he hardly kenned why, ran after him, but he was sair for jasket with his walk and the het, unhealsome weather, and rin as he licked, 
He got nae mair than a glisk at the black man among the berks, till he won down to the foot of the hillside, and there he saw him ain's mair, gown, hap, step and laup, o'er the dool water to the manse. Mr. Solis wasn't a weel pleased that this fearsome gangrel said mak safe free wi' bow-weary manse, and he ran the harder, and wet shoon, o'er the burn and up the walk, but the deal a black man was there to see. He stepped out upon the road. There was nobody there. He gaed o'er the garden, but na, nae black man. At the hinder end, and a bit feared, as was but natural, he lifted the hasp and into the manse, and there was Janet McClure before his een wi' her thrown Craig, and nane say pleased to see him. And he I minded since syne when he first he set his een upon her, he had the same cold and deadly grew. Janet, says he, have you seen the black man? A black man, quoth she, save us all, you're no wise minister. There's nae black man in our Baweary. But she didna speak plain, ye maun understand, but yam yammered like a pony with a bit in its moo. Weel, says he, Janet, if there was nae black man, I have spoken with the accuser of the brethren. And he sat down like anyway a fever, and his teeth chittered in his heed. Hoots, says she, think shame to yourself, minister, and gied him a drap brandy that she kept eye by her. Sign Mr. Sulis gate into his study among eyes books. It's a long, lame, murk chalmer, perishing cold in winter, and no very dry even in the top of the summer, for the man stands near the burn. Say doon he sat, and thought of all that had come and gained since he was in Bowery, and his hame, and the days when he was a bairn and ran draffin on the braise, and that black man I ran into his heed like the hour come of a song. Ay, the merry thought of the black man. He tried the prayer, and the words wouldn't come to him, and he tried the say to write at his book, but he couldn't make name mere of that. There was whiles he thought the black man was at his oxter, and the swat stood upon him cowled as well water, and there was other whiles when he came to himself like a christened bairn and minded nothing. The upshot was that he gate to the window and stood glowering at dool water. The trees are unco thick, and the water lies deep and black under the manse. And there was Janet washing the clays with her coats kilted. She had her back to the minister, and he, for his part, hardly kenned what she was looking at. Sign she turned round and showed her face. Mr. Sulis had the same cowled crew as twice that day afore and it was borne in upon him what folk said, that Janet was deed, Langsyne, and this was a boggle in her clay-cowled flesh. He drew back a pickle and he scanned her narrowly. She was tramp-trampin' in the clays, croonin' to her cell, and eh, good guide us, but it was a fearsome face. While she sang louder, but there was nae man born a woman that could tell the words o' her song, and while she looked side-lang down, but there was nothing there for her to look at. There gaed a scunner through the flesh upon his banes, and that was Heaven's advertisement. But Mr. Sulis just blamed himself, he said, to think say ill of a poor, owled, afflicted wife that had nae a friend for by himself, 
and he put up a bit prayer for him and her, and drank a little colour water, for his heart rose again the meat, and gave up to his naked bed in the gloomin. That was a nicht that has never been forgotten in Bawiri, the nicht of the 17th of August, 1712. It had been hetter four, as I have said, but that nicht, it was hetter than ever. The sun gave down among uncool-looking clouds. It fell as murk as the pit, no a star, no a breath of wind. You couldn't see your hand afore your face, and even the old folk cursed the covers frae their beds and lay pitching for their breath. For all that he had upon his mind, it was gay and unlikely Mr. Sulis would get muckle sleep. He lay and he tumbled. The good colour bed that he got into brunt his very banes whilst he slept, and whilst he wakened, whilst he heard the time and nicht, and whilst a tyke yowling up the muir as if someone was deed, whilst he thought he heard boggles clavering in his lug, and whilst he saw spunkies in the room, he behoved, he judged, to be sick, and sick he was, little he jaloused the sickness. At the hinder end, he got a clearness in his mind, sat up in his sark on the bedside, and fell thinking ain't smear of the black man and Janet. He could no well tell who. Maybe it was the cold to his feet. But it came in upon him with a spate that there was some connection between their twa, and that either or both of them were boggles. And just at that moment, in Janet's room, which was nest to his, there came a stramp of feet as if men were rustling, and then a loud bang, and then a wind gade racing round the four quarters of the house, and then all was in smear as silent as the grave. Mr. Sulis was feared for neither man nor devil. He got his tinderbox and lit a candle, and made three steps a tower to Janet's door. It was on the hasp, and he pushed it open and keeked boldly in. It was a big room, as big as a minister's ain, and plenished with grand old solid gear, for he had nothing else. There was a four-posted bed with old tapestry and a broad cabinet of ache. That was for the minister's divinity books, and put there to be out of the gate, and a wean duds of Janet's lying here and there about the floor. But nay Janet could Mr. Sulis see, nor any sign of a contention. In he gaed, and there's few that what they followed him, and looked round, and listened, and there was nothing to be heard, neither inside the manse nor in all Baweary parish, and nothing could be seen but the muckle shadows turning round the cannel. And then, odd ains, the minister's heart played dunt and stood stock still and a cold wind blew among the hairs of his heed. What in a weary sicht was that for the poor man's een, but there was Janet hanging frae a nail beside the old ache cabinet. Her heed I lay upon her shooter, her een was steeked, her tongue projected frae her mouth, and her heels were twa feet clear aboon the floor. God forgive us all, thought Mr. Sulis. Poor Janet's dead! And came a step nearer to the corp, and then his heart fair whammled in his inside. For by what cantrip it would ill beseem a man to judge, 
she was hanging frae a single nail and by a single worsted thread for darnin' hose. It's an awful thing to be your lane at nicht with sicken prodigies of darkness, but Mr. Sulis was strang in the Lord. He turned and gaed his ways out of that room and locked the door ahint him and step by step down the stairs as heavy as lead and set down the cannel on the table at the stairfoot. He couldn't pray, he couldn't think, he was dreeping with cold sweat, and nothing could he hear but the dunt, dunt, dunting of his ain heart. He micht maybe have stood there an hour, or maybe twa, he mended say little, when all at a sudden he heard a lay uncanny steer upstairs. A foot gay to and fro in the chamber where the corp was hanging. Sin the door was opened, though he minded weel that he had locked it, and sin there was a step upon the landing, and it seemed to him as if the corp was looking over the rail and doing upon him where he stood. He took up the candle again, for he couldn't want the licht, and as softly as ever he could, Gade stracht out of the manse into the far end of the causeway. It was I, Pitmark. The flame of the cannel when he set it upon the ground, brunt, steady and clear as in a room. Nothing moved but the dual water seeping and sabbing down the glen, and yon unhally footstep the camp plodding down the stairs inside the manse. He kenned the foot to our wheel, for it was Janet's and that ilka step that came a wee thing nearer, the cowled got deeper in his vitals. He commanded his soul to him that made and keepeth him, and, O Lord, said he, give me strength this night to war against the powers of evil. By this time, the foot was coming through the passage for the door. He could hear a hand skirt along the wall, as if the fearsome thing was feeling for its way. The souths tossed and maned together, a lang sigh came o'er the hills. The flame of the cannel was blown aboot, and there stood the corp of Thrawn Janet, with her grogam goon and her black much, with a heed eye upon the shoother, and the gurn still upon the face at leaving, ye would have said, deed, as Mr. Sulis well kenned upon the threshold of the manse. It's a strange thing that the soul of man should be that thurried into his perishable body, but the minister saw that, and his heart didn't break. She didn't stand there long. She began to move again and come slowly towards Mr. Sulis, where he stood under the sauchs. All the life of his body, all the strength of his spirit, were glowering phrasing. It seemed she was going to speak, but wanted words, and made a sign with a left hand. There came a clap of wind like a cat's fuff. Oot gade the cannel, the south screeched like folk, and Mr. Sulis kenned that live or die. This was the end of it. Which, Beldam, devil, he cried, I charge you by the power of God. Be gone, if you be dead to the grave, if you be damned to hell. And at that moment, the Lord's ain hand out the heavens struck the horror where it stood, 
the owl deed desecrated corp o' the witchwife, sae lang keeped frae the grave and her sidroon by deals, loud up like a brunstained spunk, and fell in ashes to the ground. The thunder followed, peal on darling peal, the raring rain upon the back of that, and Mr. Sulis lauped through the garden hedge and ran with skelloch upon skelloch for the clachan. That same morning, John Christie saw the black man pass the muckle cairn as it was chappin' six before echt he gaed by the change house and knocked o, and nae lang after, Sandy McClellan saw him gown Lincoln doon the breeze frae Kilmackerley. There's little doot, but it was him that dwelled sae lang in Janet's body. But he was a wat last, and since syne, the deal has never fashed us in Baweary. But it was a sair dispensation for the minister. Lang, lang, he lay raven in his bed, and frae that hour to this, he was the man ye ken the day. Hi, this is Tony Walker. I would like to remind you that you can become a patron of the Classic Ghost Stories podcast. Patrons get access to the library of member-only stories, and I'm doing a new member-only story at least once per month at the moment. You'll also get the joy of supporting me in the work so I can continue to produce the regular podcast. You can become a patron by signing up at www.patreon.com forward slash Barkid, B-A-R-C-U-D. So if you did feel that you wanted to support my work, it would be great to have you on board at Patreon. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back. Well, I will ken you, didn't you ken what I was kenning there? Sorry to anybody who's Scottish for having to put up with my accent. Um, Robert Louis Stevenson needs no introduction from me. We've done the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Uh, did I do the bottle imp? If, if I haven't, it's going to be on the list. So he was a very, 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 very famous Scottish writer, born and educated in Edinburgh. He had serious bronchial trouble all his life. That's how the Wikipedia... Uh, starts as if that's the most important thing to know about him. I mean, it is. It is a little bit important. He wrote Treasure Island. He wrote uh, Jekyll and Hyde, or Jekyll and Hyde, and kidnapped and many others, many many others. He travelled the world really, and he ended up in the um, where he died in Samoa and places like that in the po- in Polynesia. He spent some time in San Francisco, as I do recall, and Hawaii, and he liked all those islands there. Uh, this, however, has nothing to do with it. This is hearkening back to his Scottish roots. So there are many different kinds of Scottish accents, and this is broad Scots. I was surprised how many words were familiar to me from my Cumbrian side. I mean, we're just over the border, really, so, you know, flayed for frightened. There was uh, quite a lot, gay for, of the guy for, for very, and uh, lots of them really, or het as well for hot. And not many people speak like that anymore. And I remember I went to a wedding in Castle Douglas in Galloway and it was really loud disco. 
and I'm a bit deaf anyway, and they were so broad. And I'm I'm okay with Scottish accents. I could understand the what I was just reading, but uh, I struggled. Then I was just kind of nodding and smiling, and I got to the point where you know when you say something that's clearly idiotic, and they just you go they go along with you so far they actually think you know what they're talking about. And then he looked at me, it's like you are, except not like that. Well, of course, Robbie Burns was from Dumfriesshire, just along the way, or he, he lived in Dumfries. So often that kind of, that broad Scots is actually broad. And when you go up to the Highlands, it's not as broad. In fact, you know, they speak a kind of a Scottish English there rather than a Scots. And the reason for that, of course, if you want to know, and I'm digressing a lot from this story, is that the Highlanders originally spoke Gaelic and didn't learn English until quite recently. So they learned standard English, not Scots English. But the Scots in the lowlands, right up to Perth, they spoke originally Northumbrian English, Old English. In the 8th, 9th, 10th centuries, maybe not all that time, the Kingdom of Northumbria expanded from its headquarters at Bambra and became very big into Yorkshire, Northumberland, but also into the south of Scotland and into the west parts, right down into Lancashire. And th- those dialects of Yorkshire certainly Cumbria, Durham, Northumberland, and Scots are descended from Northumbrian Old English, so they have a common root. Of course, things happened subsequently. Most importantly, I suppose, the the, the Scandinavian influence on parts of that in Yorkshire and uh, in Cumbria, but not so much in Northumberland or even in Scotland. There's a commonality of the dialects, uh, quite different from Southern English, and of course, Standard English descended from the speech of the people of the southeast of England, which was the economically dominant part. And it was dominant even in the um, 17th, 18th centuries, which is why uh, in America and Canada, South Africa, you know, Australia, New Zealand, and Nigeria and India and places like that, was, they speak a, a standard English descended from southeastern English. I notice that posh Scots people aren't strongly rhotic anymore. The ordinary folk, the salt of the earth folk, the roller as, yeah. So Balwiri with a hurra. But um if you go to Edinburgh, Edinburgh, they actually the posh people there uh, just do this ra which is very similar to American and Cornish and Irish. That's this rrr sound rather than rrr. I don't hold with it myself. I feel if you're gonna if you're gonna have an R, just roll it properly. There's another fashion of ours, which is the R, which you get in French, you know, Paris, Paris. And it's spread to German. And even in Breton these days, they, they speak with this R. And that is just the fashion. It didn't go far as the south of France, which is still have an R. Well, yeah, yeah, under the influence of modern French, less so. But in Spain and in Austria and Bavaria, these areas outside the fashionable R, so it just shows how a sound can spread between languages. And um, of course, in standard English, the R has pretty much disappeared. You still get it in the Southwest, Cornwall, Somerset, R, 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 R. But me, I'm a R man. I realise that is a, a big ramble even for me. But you know, I love words. Thrawn Janet. Thrawn means crooked. I mean, there's so many words there if you don't know Scots. You just, I just, as I was reading it out loud, I was like, oh, they're just not going to understand this. Apart from people who speak Scots, of course, uh, in Scotland and in Ulster, because there's Ulster Scots as well. 
it was a commission and it was commissioned to me to do by Catherine Sahu. So I want to thank her for that because she actually, like a couple of the other ones, she's actually paid me to do a story. I do the story and then she's very graciously said, you can share it with everybody. So yeah, just uh, raise a glass or a cup of coffee or a whatever you drink, you know, water, beaker of water to um, Catherine Sahu who has made this possible. Yeah, so the story itself is actually quite chilling. I mean, I really love doing the Scots, as you can probably tell. I was um, <laughs> channeling Fraser from Dad's Army there. If you've, ever, if you've never watched Dad's Army, you should watch Dad's Army. It's very, very funny. And Fraser's the old Scottish guy there, and he everybody's doomed. So I was, I was channeling him a bit in that. But this is a devil story. It reminded me... A little bit of uh, Laura Silverbell, which we did. And there are these stories of uh, meddling with the, the deal, as he is in Scots, and witchery as well. And um, so Janet McClure was suspected of being a witch anyway. She was mumbling by herself by the hanging show, which no God-fearing person has a right to do, obviously. I hope nobody sees me mumbling by the hanging show. I don't know where it is, so I'll probably be okay. But I do mumble to myself sometimes as I'm wandering along, thinking of some witticism somebody's told me. Yeah, so Thrawn Janet is inhabited by the devil at some point, and he takes the... I think the black man... Did he? Did the black man appear in Tego Kane as well, and the corpse? But he does, he does appear, and he's this uh, guy who's... I don't know if he's dressed in black or he's dark-skinned or what he is. But um, I've, he doesn't seem to be that bad, really. Maybe I've got a bit of sympathy for the devil. Ha <laughs> ha. Did you see what I did there? Yeah, I'm having a bit of a, a, a complete ramble. It's almost as if my brain is not engaged and I'm running on fumes. Gas tank, my petrol tank, is just full of fumes and I'm just riffing and rapping on the fumes with nothing much to say. It's a devil worship story. It's a quite a good one. It seems very early, doesn't it? Although he was Victorian, it seems more folktale, I suppose, because it's done in Scots as well. And it has more to do with the, the folk beliefs. You've got to remember that the Scots in the... Yeah, well, it's interesting, the history of um, religion in Scotland. Because, of course, Henry VIII came along and he was pretty Catholic, but the Pope wouldn't get him. You know all these things. Wouldn't give him a divorce. So he said, I tell you what, I tell you what, Pope, because he was a bit of a narcissist as well. He was probably like many leaders. He probably had a narcissistic personality disorder, old Henry VIII. But you couldn't tell him because he'd kill you. A bit like Saddam Hussein or some other tyrants. He'd just kill you. So he decided, right, I'm going to break with the Pope, get lost, Pope, I want to do what I want to do. And the Protestant reformers, because Protestantism was growing in Europe at that time, used this as a, this was their Trojan horse. Henry had broken away from the Church of Rome and they used that to in, interject Protestant belief systems into the Church of England. The Church of England initially was just another Catholic church with, the, with Henry as its boss rather than the Pope. But o over times, like Thomas Cromwell and people like that, and in Scotland, because they got John Knox, and they went really fervently into Protestantism and Calvinism after John Calvin from Switzerland, really got into it. And it was a pretty dour religion. And there's still an aspect of that in the, in the Scottish character, if I may be forgiven for saying that. My grandmother was a Presbyterian. She married a Catholic. So that was a terrible thing to do in Scotland in those days. And still sectarianism 
does exist, hopefully not as strong as it was. So this, they, they were very harsh about any kind of old lingering vestiges of anything pre-Calvin. So they had a dour and severe and critical kind of view of the world. Funnily enough, um, similar thing happened in Wales with Protestantism, this time through Methodism, and the chapels that grew up in Wales. And again, these, these um, cultures were very severe and very authoritarian. You had to conform. And so, of course, poor girls who had uh, bairns out of wedlock in Scotland, plant in um, Wales, which is another digression which we won't go into. Yeah, okay, I'm going to digress. So, interestingly, the word for kids in Welsh is plant. Plantin is one. And guess what that comes from? It comes from the Latin for a plant. So you used to talk about your plants as a as kids. You know, your kids were your plants. Like, you know, we talk about kids. Kids are originally little goats. We, they were children. And then in a um, diminutive, kind of playful way, we started calling them kids. So the, the Welsh started calling their children. Instead of calling them children, they called them plant. Now, we could even go even further because in those days, the Irish weren't able to say p, rather they said k instead. So that's how we get clan. Clowned is children. That they borrowed originally from Latin, meaning plant. There's another thing, of course. The French tête head means tile originally. There's my tile, you know. So there's lots of examples of this. How kind of little playful, diminutive, common speech becomes the the official word, even though originally it's like a very playful thing. Anyway, so yeah, having children out of wedlock. That's how that all started. And you know, these girls who had children, like um, Thron Janet. We used to lock them in asylums in England. So it was a terrible thing, you know. And the people who locked those girls up would have claimed they were civilised and doing it for the good of society as well. Mm. Has my gas run out yet? Yeah, probably. Anyway, I hope you're all well. I, I've discovered a way of sticking pre-recorded pieces in, so I don't need to remember to do a call to action. I can just stick it in later. Hope you're all well. Have a lovely, lovely, lovely end of 2021. It's been fairly rubbish, hasn't it? Um, same as 2020 and back end of 2019. So I'm pig sick of it, really. I just want it to be lovely and I want to travel again. I want to hug people, mostly. Appropriately, and not people who don't want to hug me. I went to a place today and we, we couldn't shake hands or anything. We had to. We couldn't hug. I didn't know them very well, so probably they wouldn't have liked if I'd just hugged them. Goodness me, I'm rambling. Oh, by the way, I did remember one thing. I'm doing a web novel. So if you look on the various postings on YouTube and everywhere else, I'm on Wattpad. And my name there is Gospatrick on there, G-O-S-P-A-T-R-I-C. Gospatrick was a very common name in the 12th, 11th centuries around here. I mean, the Earl of Dunbar, Gospatrick. Earl of Allerdale, Gospatrick. The Lord of Catalan, Gospatrick. There's tons of them. You don't hear it so much these days. So, um, yeah, if you want to take part and kind of give me some ideas, um, I've done two pieces now, two parts of it, and I have incorporated people's ideas. So just crack on and, you know, throw your two penneth in. Yeah, that was kind of call to action. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody Some come back, don't they? 
My podcast host, Captivate FM, have recently introduced something which means I can run adverts in the podcast. I don't want you to see this as a nuisance. I want you to see this as a way that I can be funded to free up more time to produce more content for you. If you know anyone who would like to advertise on this podcast, where we currently get around 10,000 listens a week, please get in touch via the email in the show notes.